0: We don't always get our favorites to uh, be on the show with Joel Sherman and John Heyman, but I think we got one this week
1: very excited that Don Mattingly is going to be with us. And I'm very interested to ask him exactly why he retired. He was still a young man, still performing. He retired. It was about 34, 35 years old. The Yankees were doing well. And the very next year they won the World Series and he didn't get to be part of it.
0: Yeah. We'll ask him about that. His Hall of Fame chances, which come up on Sunday again, what his future is on and off the field. And John and I will go deep on this free agent class where most of the players still aren't signed. That's if you stick with us on the show, which hasn't exactly been the auto bond as far as uh, free agent signings and trades. We're not whizzing around. We're getting little drips and drabs here. Jose Abreu signed with the Astros, probably the biggest deal so far. Uh, got about three years at $60 million. So I'm wondering if with a few weeks of uh, knowledge of this free agent market, what's most interesting to you right now?
1: Well, it's interesting that the big guys haven't signed and we may have that exciting winter meetings like we had in San Diego. We're going back to San Diego, 2019, where we saw the signings of Garrett Cole and Drosberg at the time that was a big signing and uh, Rendon at the time that was a big signing neither one of those two turned out to be obviously Cole has done very well with the Yankees but uh, they are gonna have a big winter meetings in San Diego again obviously still got Judge still got DeGrom still got all those short stops to go and Verlander and Rodon so uh, it's a great market it's still out there
0: yeah you know uh, one of the things that sticks out to me is if you want to travel back to San Diego it was kind of one day one day, one day, right? For all those guys like Strasburg, then Cole, then Rendon. They were all Scott Boris clients. And I'm kind of interested really. I mean, I wrote about this over the weekend in the, uh, in the post, uh, like this left hand hitting marketplace, because I keep wondering about the shift next year. Like, are teams going to emphasize getting lefty hitters again? And I think Scott's got pretty much every good lefty hitter who's not Andrew Benatende left, right? He's got Nimmo and he's got a bunch of interesting guys. Like, what do you think about a guy like Bellinger? Can he be fixed? What do you think about Michael Conforto? What do you think about Joey Gallo? Like, those are old bars guys, jerks and profar the uh, Japanese player coming over, Yoshida. Yoshida, he's Boris. Those are all left-hand hitting outfielders at a time where teams might want to get back to that element of having more left-hand hitters if the limitations on shift change things.
1: Yeah, all very different. I mean, Bellinger is a potential home run if you can get him back to 2018, 2019, Uh, Gallo obviously uh, had a very rough year, particularly in New York, but also in L.A., so that's an interesting one. Conforto missed the year. That's interesting. Yoshida's an on-base machine. Uh, not great defensively, but uh, a good all-around hitter. You know, everybody brings something different. Uh, Brantley, he does not represent, still a good left-handed bat who did not play, obviously did not see him in the World Series. His team did win without him. And Benintendi, we were familiar with. He was briefly in New York. Uh, certainly the Yankees want him or one of the others. I mean, the Yankees are looking at two outfielders. The Yankees and Giants are interesting to me because both teams really uh, need to sign two outfielders. And uh, Nimmo, I think, is in play in san francisco i don't i doubt he's the yankees are going to go for nimmo uh i don't see the yankees getting the mets guys i don't see the mets getting judged but uh you know anything's possible anything's allowed technically in free agency
0: yeah, well, collusion's not allowed. They got clear to that. Well, who knows if that's accurate or not? But uh with a few weeks of knowledge here. Come
1: on, uh, I, I trust them. I trust them.
0: John, I don't trust a lot of them. So uh, but that's probably for a different show. Uh my theories on collusion and why Yankees have never signed Mets and Mets have never signed Yankees. Anyway, different show. Let's uh we got plenty of free agents still available in this marketplace. So let's let's talk about that. Like again, we have a little more knowledge now than we had when everybody became a free agent, John. Who do you think is going to get a lot more money than maybe we anticipated when this whole process began?
1: You know, I wouldn't be shocked if it was Judge. I mean, uh, you know, I I think I predicted 288. I think you had 300 or something like that, 304 when we first did this. judge guessing game I guess that was probably more than a month ago at this point but I mean I don't sense there are tremendous number of teams in on him but it only takes one or two depending on the agent you know in this case I think the Yankees have come in with a I think a big offer I'm sure it's starting with a three and you know I do believe that the Giants are very interested you know they're looking at shortstop as well so they could go in a different direction if they sense something's not going right but it does feel like he is their number one guy, which really shouldn't shock anyone. They had Barry Bonds, and they loved having him from most perspectives, not all. But Judge uh, is the Bonds now without the negative. So uh, I do think they're going to go big as well. So. Wouldn't be shocked if it was Judge getting much more than we thought.
0: Yeah, I wonder if Judge ends up being like 9 at 342, something like 38 a year, just because the Yankees decide in the short term they can't live without him on or off the field. Uh, And I mean off the field also, where he's so important to drawing fans and their network. Yes. I wonder if once Judge is off the board, if that does a lot for Nimmo's market, I think you and I have always believed Nimmo's going to get a lot more than kind of the general anticipation of it. I wonder if one's judges off the board, I know a lot of people are saying five years at 110, Does do teams feel compelled then to get to a sixth year or maybe even a seventh year with him? Do they feel compelled to get over 20 million? I think there'll be a little bit of a bidding war. And I think that especially Met fans who sit around and go, Brandon Nimmo, really that uh, are going to be surprised at what the final number ends up
1: yeah some of these predictions are way off on Nimo. I didn't say Nimo because I've expected him to get a pretty healthy contract to begin with not that 110 million is not healthy but I, I don't even think that's in the ballpark I did that's what we that get for this
0: prediction. podcast John we 110. that's the easy stuff you know uh,
1: yeah exactly uh, you know I think people mention Ellsbury who got I think 153 or something like that and you know when I say that to Scott Boris he says well that was an old deal like of course, the Yankees will tell you that wasn't a very good deal, but it was an old deal. And, you know, Nimmo's got the Giants. The Giants are in there to spend and and win. I do believe that. They gave Jock Peterson over $19 million, a guy who was being paid $6 million. I think he's better than that. He went home and took that uh, hometown discount the first time. But uh, I think the Giants are in to win. They're a team that's in on Nimmo, as are the Rays. Uh, right now, the Mets are concentrating on pitching, as they should. Uh, they've got all these pitching-free agents led by DeGrom, but certainly have Tywan Walker and Chris Bassett. Uh, who do you think uh, stays home uh, among those three? Uh, that's an interesting one.
0: Yeah, that I, I do think it's an interesting one, John. I think you can make a case for all of them and a case against all of them. Uh, I think it probably matters that if you were around the team, you recognize that the manager really, really liked Chris Bassett. That's Buckshell Walter. Uh, He is, you know, as certain innings as you get with starting pitching, it seems like he's a, a late bloomer who's learned how to at least pitch as a high quality number three starter. I would probably put it on him. Uh, at this point, but you mentioned that DeGrom's in that. So, like you and I, I think we both don't really love predictions, but so I'm going to force you to kind of wrap up our, our first segment. Let's make a prediction, John. There's, there's, I think we agree, seven really big free agents, the four shortstops DeGrom, Verland, or Rodan. Uh, do you want to put Senga in that? I think it's the other seven, and Senga is the head of the next category who signs first? That's interesting one. you know what but it feels like that's the the one like once we get a domino it feels like other dominoes will fall
1: right? Right. Yeah. The The first prediction is, is always a tough one. I mean, you know, it could be judged because it doesn't feel like there's a ton of teams. And I think the teams that are in are really going to be in and maybe they can figure it out quickly. But I'm going to say Verlander because we know he's out on the tour right now. He's talked to the Dodgers. It's pretty clear which teams can play for him. Same with Degrom, right? I mean, there's only a certain number of teams that are going to want to spend 35 million plus for a pitcher. So, I mean, obviously we know the Dodgers spoke to uh, Verlander yesterday and uh, there's only a a certain number of teams. So I could see him going first. DeGrom may take a while. That could be an interesting one to me because I never saw him as loving the Mets as other people do. And people around the Mets are saying, well, I think we can get him back if we can be in the ballpark. I'm not seeing that. I think maybe the Mets will win the day because they'll have the highest bid. I I, I don't rule that out, but I, I don't see it. Did, did you see it differently than me? I mean, people play these clips all the time about how much Degrom really wants to come back and loves the Mets. I, I didn't see it that way. I, I think he's going to go for the best offer and I'm not, still not going to be surprised if that's, Texas not sure he loves the
0: Mets I'm not sure he loves baseball aside the day he pitches there's a lot of things I have real questions about whether he loves and I wonder about the marketplace for him you know you were talking about judge how many teams could do it how many teams are going to go into the Scherzer realm I kind of feel like this is what the Mets are doing right now they're probably trying to smoke him out a little bit can you actually you know once the Braves sign Charlie Morton are they in it do the Rangers really feel like they want to like kind of play this game with Cone go there waste a lot of their winter is it easier for them to maybe do Rodon and Senga and, you know, get a couple of guys? So, I mean, the Mets might be sitting there and going like, look, it's Jacob Grom. When he's healthy, he's the best pitcher in baseball. He's going to have a market. But I wonder if the Mets are going to, like, just see, like, come on, prove it to us. And then we'll see if we want to do this or not. John, I, I was going to say Verlander also as far as the first guy who signs. And I kind of just, again, wonder if it's all a fake out. He's doing a tour and then he's just going to resign in Houston because I think that's where he's happy and comfortable. So instead of doing Verlander, I'll do Trey Turner and that that will move the shortstop market because Dave Dombrowski, historically, when he wants something, he's very aggressive to go get it. Like he doesn't like want to shortstop and sign a right fielder because he's like some analytic guy who's like, well, the bargain was the right fielder. And he's great at talking ownership into spending money. And I think if you were around the World Series, John Middleton was in the clubhouse every day. He already was a spender. I think he got a taste of the blood of the World Series and loves it and is ready to go big. And I think they were on Turner even before the Harper news became obvious that Harper won't play for half a season. So I'm going to say Turner. I'm going to say the Phillies. And I say that gets all the dominoes going.
1: That could be. Turner is a fit for the Phillies. I know a question about it. his wife from New Jersey. It does feel like he wants to be prefers to be on the East Coast. He has said he would go back to the Dodgers and he did like it there. I could see that being a possibility. Bogertz is another guy, Dembrowski knew from Boston, so I'm not going to rule him out with Philly. Bogertz has some interesting possibilities. You hear San Diego is looking for a leader. Potentially, they could go for a shortstop and put Tatis in the outfield. The Dodgers are an interesting team on shortstop. San Francisco, these shortstops are in great position. They really are. There's about 11 teams that are considering a shortstop. I think the Yankees will only do a shortstop if they don't get Judge, which I think you and I both feel that they're still the favorite, uh, no matter how well the San Francisco visit went. I do think they're going to get Judge, And if they don't get them, they'll probably be in that shortstop market. But for now, they're probably not really. Still about 10 teams looking at a shortstop. So they're in great position. And yeah, Philly is one, whether it be Turner or Bogerts. I do think Bogerts will take longer than Turner.
0: Yeah, I think the Yankees are faking the shortstop market also. Uh, all the players we mentioned, I think probably have
1: some shot
0: at ultimately making the Hall of Fame. John, coming up next on the show with Joel Sherman and John Heyman is someone who might be in the Hall of Fame by Sunday night. It's Don Mattingly, and it's next. Welcome back to the show with Joel Sherman and John Heyman. And for us, this is a special guest because I guess Don Mattingly knew us when, and we knew him when, uh, starting in the late 80s and early 90s when John and I were beat writers, John for Newsday, me for the New York Post, and Donnie was the captain and best player on the New York Yankees. So, Don, who's joining us from his lifelong hometown of Evansville, Indiana. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Oh, no
2: problem. Yeah, you guys, it's quite a class. You, John, Michael Case taking over the uh the Yes Network or whatever that is now there. Yes, yeah, pretty, pretty good class. Jack Curry for a
0: while, right? Was yeah. one our beat writers. Yeah, we all we all graduated. They've been guests. I I have a feeling you're gonna be a better guest than them. Don, because we should start with you are in the news. This week when we're uh, taping this on Tuesday, this coming Sunday, the Contemporary Baseball Era Committee meets and at 8 p.m. they will announce who from the eight players who are up uh, made the Hall of Fame and you are among those eight players. I just wonder what you think about waiting this out. You had to do this for uh, 10 years previously, and now you're on the clock again. What, what, what are you feeling right now as you wait this out? I'm honored. Obviously, a lot of just people
2: that I played against uh, seem in the Hall of Fame guys. Just honored to be on the ballot and and feel good about it. Excited to be one of the, obviously, as a player, it's probably the best thing that could happen. Could happen to you you know once your career is over
1: hey don uh, it's john Heyman here thank you so much for joining us really appreciate it um, you're one of our favorites as you know for more than three decades as we will all admit here yeah i want to follow up on that hall of fame i uh, i've always voted i always voted for you and uh, i was surprised you didn't get more votes were you surprised i mean you've really handled everything with class throughout your career but I mean, were you a little surprised at the the, the writers' votes? What do you think uh, the reason is that you really did not come close in the writers' vote, but now you do have your chance? And is this a burning desire for you to be in the Hall of Fame?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a desire. Obviously, I think every player you play, it would be something if you felt like you've, you've done enough. And I think, obviously, people look at it as being on the borderline, right? There's people that voted for you, people that don't. Different committees put you on and things like that. So obviously you're one of those guys that's on the borderline. I don't know how to how else to look at it other than like you kind of played your cards. Proud of my career uh, to an extent. I know it, it didn't end the way I wanted it to as far as production over time. But those are also cards that you that you've been dealt and you do the best you can with it.
0: You know, Donnie, uh, a player who had a career somewhat similar to you was Joe Torre. And, you know, he had a well above average career. And then he's never going to make the Hall of Fame, but he becomes a manager uh, and wins the titles with the Yankees, the four championships that he wins with them. I wonder if you think that was a key here for you. You know, you were with the Dodgers, you with the Marlins. If we take the accumulation, if there's a, you know, especially one of those Dodger teams are able to cash it in. I wonder if today already we're talking about Don Manningley Hall of Famer because the whole baseball life then becomes kind of an easy layup baseball Hall of Fame life.
2: Yeah, I, you know, obviously I don't know that, but I think the the managing side of this, because I, I read some an, an article or something that that's part of your, you know, after playing days, your coaching and, and managing can be part of this. And obviously, some things that we were able to do in LA. I felt like there being the first guy to win three straight divisions obviously didn't get to the next level that we wanted to get to, but was able to get that team going in the right direction uh, after Joe, you know, kind of left and. And the new ownership came in. We we're able to right that ship, and then in Miami, honestly, felt like we were turning the corner in 2020. Felt like our organization was going the right direction. We were there. We were on the cusp of taking off, and then the last two, two years have been devastating down there for me because I felt like we were ready to win, and we were never able to to put that together.
1: You know, I, the reason I, I vote for you, well, there's many reasons, but you know, I thought you were one of the best players for about a five or six-year period there and happened to coincide with the period before I started. I'm lucky. I don't think I had anything to do with me coming in in 1990, but that's when the back really uh, kicked in, I think, the back injury. How do you look back on your career? You said you're satisfied, I think, to a degree. Uh, Was there something else that you would have liked to have done um your your stats are similar to Kirby Puckets. You have over 300 batting average and you are considered one of the greatest fielding first baseman of all time. Uh, to me that's a Hall of Fame career, but is there something that you feel that you fell short on?
2: Well, that's not winning. Obviously, winning is is the the key, right? I think not getting to a, a World Series or getting deeper into the playoffs or even consistently In the playoffs, being able to make it 95 was a huge for me, almost monkey off your back. It's been a long time. I knew I was I was ready to retire and just to be able to get in and play in the playoffs. So I think what's missing is is winning it all. That's the biggest thing that I feel like I've missed.
0: You know, Donnie, I'd be remiss if I didn't say who else was on the Contemporary Baseball Era Committee ballot with you. uh, That will be determined this Sunday. It's Albert Bell, Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, Fred McGriff. Dale Murphy, Rafael Palmero, Kurt Schilling, and Don Mattingly, 1985 AL MVP, nine gold gloves, six all-star games, three silver slugger uh, awards. I'm wondering, look, the names stand out. John and I had to decide this for 10 years about how you feel about guys like Bonds and Clemens. This is your era, uh, both as a player and then ultimately as a coach and a manager. What do you feel about the players who have ties to a, legal, a legal performance enhancers?
2: Well, I've played against a lot of these guys, right? And uh, probably the, the ones I've seen the least uh, would be uh, Barry and Dale Murphy. Didn't really – I got to see Dale in spring training a little bit. Basically never played against Barry or uh, just coached the one year we went out there in San Francisco uh, with New York when he was still playing. R- Face Roger, you know, obviously a guy with great stuff. Uh, Face Kurt more earlier in his career and then coached against him later the one thing I've said about this the kind of the, if you're going to talk about steroids at all I'm glad that there's testing now as a fan and as a player it equals the playing field and you want to know like from the fan side of me when I watch a guy and I say man this dude's great I love this guy this guy's yeah. a great player I want to know that it's equal to all the other guys I'm comparing him with and from the fan side I really, I really want to see the greatness and I want to know it came from hard work and preparation. It didn't have anything to do with anything else. So I'm really glad there's testing. I hope it gets better and better over time, that we always know the players we're seeing, this is their ability. That's kind of where I, I leave it. We don't know anything else. For me, I don't know for sure or factual. So you just kind of leave it alone from
0: there. Tony. if I could just follow, though, I think that you and Fred as first baseman in particular, the the – In your moment, the numbers you produced were MVP numbers. And maybe five or 10 years later, they wouldn't have been. And then you ultimately get compared to people like, well, you only have 200 something homers or something like that. And Fred McGriff finishes with 493. And I think we all generally feel that Fred McGriff did this the right way. I don't wanna, is it frustration? Is it bitterness? Does something exist there? That frustrates you that you get compared to people who clearly didn't do things legally.
2: Well, I'll tell you, I'm proud of what I was able to do. And I know I did it legally, right? That's the one thing you say. And, you know, I watch Freddie, Freddie, you know, what's the difference in 494 homers and 500 homers, which used to be the standard, right? You get 500, you're you're in the Hall of Fame. So Freddie was a great player for a long time. But for me, I think you always just keep it in context of yourself. Right. You know, and I can't, and I, I really feel like I was leaving in 95. It may have been part of, it may have been coming or brewing on the, on the bottom and didn't really see it uh, as much. But obviously when I left, the numbers start going through the roof and you start to, to question. I don't really I guess know how to answer it in that way. Cause you know, I know what, what I was able to do was, was put up with just the work that I was able to do. And I actually look at it, a little differently, maybe than some people would think, because you don't know what you would do as a player. If you know, I went through the back injury at the end of my career and struggled with that. If this would have, if it would have been prevalent then, and somebody would have said, "Hey, if you, you know, this is treatment for that. It's going to get you stronger. It helps heal." You, you don't know what you would do as a as a thirty year old player, and, and knowing that you can do things and you want to help your club, and you're not able to do them. And somebody says, hey, you can do this. And it's not illegal. You just don't know what you would would do. And that's where I say I'm glad that the testing is there because now we know. Right. I'm glad it's there for everybody uh, to keep it equal, that we're all kind of on that same field.
1: Yeah, I can attest to the, all the hard work that you did. And certainly when I got there in 90, uh, you had to do all that extra work uh, to try to keep your back as healthy as possible. And it's great that you did it the right way. I want to put you on the spot a little bit here. I don't know how you want to answer this, but you know, obviously the writers have had a bit of a dilemma whether to vote for the guys that they are convinced did do the PEDs. Now, without bringing any names into it, if you're if you convinced somebody did PEDs, w- would you consider voting him into the Hall of Fame? I
2: guess if I had facts, it would be harder if you had facts. I said, if you, if you don't know, you don't know. If I had facts, though, it would be hard for me because uh, I guess you don't know to what degree, you know, and, and would you have put those same numbers up without it? Maybe. Uh, would you have been as good without it? You know, we don't know, right? So I think that's the problem is, like, how long was that going on? Was it going on for 10 years? For 10 years of birth of your numbers are, are tainted? I, you know, again, it's hard if you don't have facts, it's just hard to, to decide on that. But if you have facts, I would have trouble saying yes, they should be.
0: Donnie, you mentioned uh, Fred McGriff in the nine. I think it's 493. You know, without the lost time to labor in 94 and 95, when he was perhaps the foremost power hitter in the game, he would have went over 500 homers easily. So, you know, you, that, that should probably be taken into consideration. And I just think as an overall player, Fred McGriff, Don Mattingly, and Keith Hernandez are kind of generally value-wise. If I thought like, Who's the best of that group? I'd say, well, they're kind of very similar. Like, I'd take any of them because they might do it a little differently, but they're very similar total output players. And I'm just wondering, when you saw this ballot, did you wonder, where's Keith Hernandez?
2: A little bit because, you know, I looked at Keith as like, you know, when I was just coming into New York, Keith was just coming into New York and I was young. He had already established, you know, really had not seen him play that much. You know, again, National League, uh, it was at a time in my life, coming through high school and all that. You're not watching that much baseball. You're playing more. You don't have the same access to games. But being able to watch Keith and watch him play, I was like, this dude is awesome. And I love the way he hit. He used the whole field. He was the guy that was a tough out. And and I love the comparison of us three because I feel like you're right. We all kind of did it differently. You know, Fred probably had more – obviously had more power than Keith or myself – Keith and I were probably a little bit better at throwing a base hit up when we needed it, though. And on the defensive side, Freddie probably doesn't get as much accolades, but Freddie was really good. And I think you can't argue with Keith. And I, I, I don't talk about myself, but with defense, it's one thing that I always say I feel like I could play first base with anybody. I don't care who you want to put out there, I can play with them. And you're not going to go, that guy can't play first. So, uh, yeah, it's a pretty good. I like
1: that. I like
2: being in that, that threesome right there.
1: I can certainly attest to that. having not seen your whole career in New York, but, uh, you know, I think we've been pretty tough. You know, I, I am trying to vote for more and more guys because I, I think we've been very, very difficult in terms of who we let in and who we don't let in. And, you know, this is kind of a, a catchall and I appreciate the veterans committee. I think it's a, a very good idea. And I think they've gotten some guys in like Trammell and uh, Morris who I think we overlooked, and those are guys that I did vote for but did not get in. Who who did you play with? And obviously you were in the American League your your entire career. Who, who did you play with or against who you think we have overlooked a little bit and should be getting a little bit more recognition in terms of the Hall of Fame? Well, when you say Trammell, it, it sparks Lou Whitaker,
2: right? Because to me, Lou Whitaker, at that point, like you didn't look at second baseman as being offensively – You know, in general, that was a position of speed and defense and things like that. Lou Whitaker was a force. Like, him leading off the game was dangerous. And so, Lou is one of those guys, for me, I'm like, is this the best second baseman I played against? I don't know who's better. I didn't get to play against Hamburg. I didn't, you know, some of those guys. I never played against those guys. But Lou Whitaker has got to be one of the best second basemans that that I played against. And another guy I think about that we've seen a lot was, like, Dwight Evans, like, in Boston, like, like I didn't see his career early but I seen it late this guy was a tough out like this guy was you know him he hooked up with Walt Reniac there at the end I knew Walt was there but this dude was a tough out and a defensive player too that was a force those two guys kind of come to mind quick and if if you would probably run down 10 other clubs and go through their roster probably find a lot more of those type guys
0: Donnie, amen on your defense. I mean, for anybody who kind of began covering this sport when Don Mattingly and Keith Hernandez were playing first base in New York, when they put some lumbering non-defender at first base and say it's fine, I'm like, no, it's not fine. I saw it when it was the best. Uh, And I think the one thing I always thought I've talked about all the time is I thought you had the greatest first baseman's clock I've ever seen. If you threw to a base, the guy was out at the base you threw to because you just had this great clock. You understood the speed of the game, the speed of the players. I'm wondering if I could just kind of change focus here from the Hall of Fame a little bit. Uh, we mentioned you've managed in two places. Uh, you ended your relationship with the Marlins at the end of this uh, past season in 2022. Generally, tell us what, what is your future? Uh, our colleague Andrew Marshan uh, wrote an article again, this is time sensitive, but in Tuesday's paper that the Yes Network was considering you and Derek Jeter to perhaps do some broadcasting. Uh, you told him cryptically, I think i am got something else hot going on right now. Would you like to tell John and I what's hot right now? I would like to, but I probably won't do that right now. Uh, I do have some,
2: a club that I've been talking with and to- and talked to a few clubs this winter. And some of them just, I wasn't ready for for what they were wanting at that point. The last club that I've, that I've kind of continued to talk with was, has been really interesting to me but it is something that's, that's burning. But with, with Andrew, he, he texts me yesterday and, and brings this thing up about the yes network. And I'm like, this is the first I've heard of it. Right. I would love to have a chance to work with G someday again. So I, I like that relationship down in Miami, total respect for Derek. So we might make a good crew on there one at some point. Right. Probably
1: not, probably not this year. Well, you, I guess you can't tell us exactly what you're going to do. I mean, you've obviously been on the field as a hitting coach and a manager and, two places is that where you're looking right now uh is to to have a field job or is it are you interested in the front office
2: i'm interested in everything honestly and i really was interested from the standpoint like i I honestly felt like i was going to come home this winter and this coming spring i was going to be doing something but didn't look at it thought it'd be something more on the advisory role something like that uh but I would, I would say one team in particular really talked to me and talked to really my soul of like what I like to do and, and, and seeing a value. And it, it's been, a, it's been very interesting to me. So I'll, I'll leave it at that, but excited about, about this opportunity.
0: I wonder if I, again, I understand. I'm, I don't want to play 20 questions here and you clearly don't, don't want to tell us, but, but I think that John and I are sincere about, your personality and your baseball expertise which belong in the game and when you say figure out what you want to do do you know you you know you're 61 now i believe do you know what you kind of want to do like what your passions are and what you feel like your skill set is to i know you well enough again to improve other people in the game well i want to win
2: and and i appreciate that because i think that's where the the organization that i talk with you know came to me from this background. What I love, uh, I do feel like I need to be in the game. I still feel good physically, uh, mentally, all those things. But you want to be valued in a sense of like, I want to use my talents, right? I want to like, I see things, I feel like I see things I can help players. Uh, I want players to get better, I want the game to be great, and I want to be a part of a winning situation, right? And that. It, you know, again, this the, where, I, where I've been – what we've been talking about is something really interesting, and, and I appreciate the fact that you feel like I still have a place. You know, sometimes you don't, right? As you get older in this game and, and the analytics and the information kind of keeps growing and growing and growing, there's times you do feel like, man, I feel like a little bit of a dinosaur here. But then as you keep watching players and you keep watching the game – you know, there's a lot of it that's changed from that standpoint, but there's a lot of it that has not, that you still can have an effect on players and help them grow and help them be better and help the team be better.
1: Now, Don, your your last job obviously was in Miami. You got them to the playoffs, which is was – Quite an accomplishment. Obviously, the hitting was not there this year. Do you feel uh, good about their chances in the future to figure it out? Obviously, they've had financial woes as well. I mean, we know that area around the stadium. You know I'm there a lot, and they haven't been able to build build up that area. They have all these storefronts, and they're not filled. There's like one cigar store and one, I think, memorabilia or something, or one subway, and there's like 13 open Storefront. So they haven't been able to bring in the finances to really be competitive year in and year out. Do you, do you think that there's hope in Miami? And uh, is there hope in terms of their team? I mean, obviously, uh, you your team had no offense this year. I, you don't have to say it. I can say it. I saw a lot of games. Do you feel somewhat optimistic about the future of baseball in Miami?
2: I do. You don't have to look too far to be optimistic when you say Alcantara, López, uh Lazardo, Edward Cabrera, Trevor Rogers, uh, and it's still coming. So when you start throwing out starting pitcher names like that, uh, I think there is hope to be optimistic. Uh, there's reason to be optimistic. I think it got a it's been a little got a little just the changes, right? You know, we went from one ownership to the other, and then we had the the Derek turnover, and that's kind of created more changes. Uh, I think Kim gets a real shot now of building that the way she wants. But with that pitching, I think you have to be optimistic. And and there's guys that didn't have seasons that you thought they would have last year, but are capable. And so, you know, I love Skip. Skip played for me in in, in L.A. I think he's going to do a great job down there. He's got the energy for it. I think you have to have a young energy down there right now to keep building this and keep going through it. So, I think Skip's the right guy for that. You know, I think Mel resigned, tremendous job. So, I, I do think it's optimistic with the business side of it. I, you know, I, I can't answer those questions. Uh, I do see like more things coming towards the stadium down the river. And that's one thing as Brickle starts growing and coming towards the stadium, uh, they're coming right along that river. There's been new apartments going up every year. I think there's a possibility, you know, as this keeps growing, that get those storefronts filled, give people a reason. It's just hard to get to the ballpark. I think that's the biggest problem. It's hard to get to the ballpark in Miami. I've had friends come from Indiana. They go to a game. We're stuck in traffic afterwards if it's a big series or they have trouble getting an Uber out of there, things like that. Those things, you got to have things for fans to be able to get there easily, easy access, easy out, things to do when you get around the ballpark. So those are questions that are not for me, but Things you see in other ballparks, like when you know you go to places Atlanta and San Diego, and there's stuff all around the ballpark. Things to do. It helps.
0: Yeah, people complain about the subway, Donnie, but the number four gets you right to the uh, Yankee Stadium. I know that, and the number seven gets you right to City Field, and it makes a difference to those two places. You mentioned something about analytics before, and I dare say you should know. You had influence. I mean, I remember. You talking as a player about facing Randy Johnson, talking about, like, at some point, it just becomes mono or mono. Like, what am I doing to get a hit here? Like, I, I got to get a hit. Like, it's it becomes that. And I think, like, this year, I watched the two New York teams. I thought Eric Chavez, as the hitting coach, made a difference with the Mets because, ultimately, the analytic guy was behind him. And he could help with 32% sliders, 50% up in the zone. But I think it helped that somebody who had been in the batter's box was the forward-facing voice as the batting coach. And I think the Yankees missed that. Uh, They didn't have that. Hensley Mullins was like third in charge. I'm wondering, do you feel like something is missing, not to crap on numbers here and stats and analytics, but that there is some human touch about saying, hey, now it's time to compete. What are you doing to compete? Do you understand that the score is 3-3? What needs to be done here? Not 62% of the time, but right this second, what needs to be done? Yeah, I mean,
2: it's kind of this. This discussion goes on a lot, right? Because, like, you know, making a move in the game, and they would come to me afterwards, and and maybe it's like, you know, if we we don't walk this guy, or we should walk this guy, or we shouldn't walk this guy, it gives us a one percent chance, a better over the course of one sixty two. But what you're saying is like, right now, what do we do? And you're right, I think. Whoever had the influence, if it was was Chavi over there, the Mets were paying a lot tougher to deal with this year than they were the year before. They put the ball in play on you, and when you shifted, when the numbers told you to shift, they had some guys just pecking, putting it in play. They forced Alcantara to throw more pitches just by fouling balls off. So instead of him going seven or eight or nine, he's coming out in six, and you then they get the little bullpen. Or – you know, just on and on with that kind of thing. So I do think there's a balance there, you know, and, and I'm definitely not going to be the guy that argues with numbers because numbers are real, right? Like shifting and where we play guys. I mean, if you if you argue against like that doesn't help get out, you're crazy because those balls are getting hit at guys so much, right? And, and the hitters have been slow to say, I'll take my hit, you know, I'll, t- I'll put it in play over there on that side of the field. I'm going to take my hit. Right. And I, so I think there needs just to be a balance of that. And so I think you're right. I think that voice that's played and says, hey, we need to get this guy over. And, and it's funny this year. I had to have conversations with uh, with Mookie Betts behind the cage in Miami and, and Justin Turner. And we were talking similar some of this type stuff. Right. And they were both saying when they took off this year, there was a point in the season that they start talking about, hey, we have to get runners over. We've got to do these little things because we know once you get to the playoffs, those runs are hard to come by. And so these are players talking about it too. So it's not just like this old dinosaur saying, Hey, we got to move around or we got to get that run in. I think players are seeing it too. And obviously it didn't go well for the Dodgers in the playoffs, but they were another one of those teams that put the ball in play. They played
1: baseball on you, they ran the bases well.
2: But I do think there has to be a balance with everything that's going on.
1: You're, always be known as a Yankee, a lifetime Yankee. You were a great coach with the Yankees and obviously a terrific, terrific player. And I'm still curious, is is there something more to why you retired beyond the back at that point, Uh, family reasons, anything, anything you can share with us today?
2: And I do feel the same way. I, I always feel like when I fly into New York, I feel like I'm kind of flying home. You know, you don't go to come to New York as a, as a 21 year old, play your whole career there and really don't feel like that's where, you know, that's kind of home. Uh, but I can also kind of put myself like in the, and I won't put myself in the same category outside of this, but Yogi, you know, Yogi kind of went all over. He coached in different places. Like going to LA with me was like great for me, get access to the National League game. And I've told a lot of people, you know, Joe and I interviewed for that job in New York in whatever year it was. I don't even know what year it was now. Uh, and they picked Joe. And I'm like, it's probably the best thing that happened to me is I got a chance to go to the National League. And, and so it kind of furthered my career, I think. It, it opened up new doors. Uh, access to that game was great. So I feel like I will always, in a sense, be a Yankee. Uh, now with the retirement, it's pretty simple. Uh, for me, the last couple of years was tough on me, family-wise, from the standpoint of my boys. Like the boys weren't coming back to New York during the season. Like in the in the before, you know, when school was going on, you I understood and I knew that you know they they could come back and forth. They'd get to a close city where we went, but then during the summer, they wanted to stay home. They wanted to play ball. How selfish, selfish of me to say, hey, the kids can't play, or you know, they should come back to New York and. I leave for the ballpark at two o'clock and they sit around the house and go to a game every day. Right. So the, the boys wanted to play. And I think that became tough on me that they were in Indiana playing ball. I still love playing. So the field part was always great for me. Like I never ever wanted not play. So that part was great. It was it was the probably more in like New Jersey going back to the house when we were at home playing in Yankee Stadium. And I felt like I was still on the road. I feel like I was in a hotel because I'd go back, I walk upstairs, I go to the bedroom, come back down, go through the kitchen, grab some coffee and go to the ballpark. And that's, just kind of, that's the road kind of thing. You're at the hotel, you're to the ballpark, you're back to the hotel. And that's what really beat me up those last couple of years is not being able to be around those boys. And I knew if I'd have kept going, they weren't going to know me. And quite honestly, that that gets me emotional because that's the one thing I probably couldn't live, live with is that the boys didn't know me and know that I was there for that part of their life, even though I missed a lot of the early part. And people say, oh, you just missed those rings, you missed the ring. I'm like, you know what, I would have missed a lot more if I'd have kept playing. And I would not trade any of that for a ring. So simple is really about those, you know, my boys and being there for them.
0: That answer doesn't surprise any of us who know Don Mattingly. And by the way, Mattingly did make the World Series this year, right? Preston, uh, he was trying to
2: get that ring before me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Those of us who know you and appreciate you, you were the biggest star on the team. And I wish that everybody could not only watch how you played first base and hit, but watch how you handled reporters back in your day on a daily basis. Uh, Those of us who are still doing this job miss that in a star level player. And I think John and I will always appreciate it. And it's one of the reasons we're going to be rooting on Sunday that you get to Cooperstown. So Don Mattingly, thank you so much for joining us on the show with Joel Sherman and John Heyman and whatever that job is best of luck with it.
2: (laughs) Thanks John. All right. All right. Thanks Joel. Thanks John. See you guys.
0: John, you and I can't be shocked that uh, Don Mattingly was gracious and interesting because he's been gracious and interesting with us for three plus decades. But, uh, in his 30-odd minutes with us, what
1: what stuck out for you? I, you know, I thought once pinned down, he said that he would not support uh, a PED guy if he knew that the person did do the PEDs. So I thought that was interesting. But to me, the most interesting thing was him talking about why he decided to retire. I think he was mid-30s, around 34, 35, still could play, had good years, not as great as he was previously But very good years in 94 and 95. They finally made the playoffs. And he just talked about how he chose family over the potential of winning a ring, even though he has that burning desire to win a ring. He said the family was more important. I thought that was a great answer. And I think, you know, it's really something that he hasn't talked about in depth before.
0: Yeah. You know, John, I'm going to talk about something that Don Mattingly didn't talk about, but that really bothers me. And that's this committee that's making this decision on Sunday, that's meeting on Sunday. It's a 16-person committee. We don't have really – the Hall of Fame puts it together. The Hall of Fame could rig it. They don't really tell us how they put it together. They could decide we don't want the steroid guys in and they could shore five guys that aren't in it. The fact that Greg Maddox and Chipper Jones are on there. Do they want Fred McGriffin? Like, this is it. By the way, we don't find out because those people don't reveal their ballots. They don't tell us what they did. And the smaller the committee, the more power you have, the more transparency there should be. And whatever you think about the writers doing this, there is a bar. There is something we have to get over. You have to be 10 years in the business getting a baseball writer's card to be able to be a voter. So we know how you become a voter. Most of us are transparent and make our ballots available. Most of us either talk about a TV, radio, podcast, and or write about it like you and I both do. And I think that this is a, I, I don't mind oversight to us. There are guys who fall through the cracks. Maybe Don Mattingly's that or Fred McGriff or Dale Murphy or Barry Bonds. But I hate how this committee is put together and the lack of transparency that is part of this committee. By the time we do our show next Tuesday, we'll know if anybody on that eight-person ballot got in, and John will be doing it from the winter meetings. In San Diego next week for the winter meetings, thank you for listening to this particular show uh, from the New York Post. Don't forget, every Wednesday on the Yes app, we drop. You get to see John and I and mine pretty faces. I know you can't wait for that. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a five star rating on Apple and Spotify. And again, don't forget to listen to us every week on the show with Joel Sherman and Johnny.